0: The hearts God uses his omniscience uh, to judge all our thoughts and intentions and our works. Uh, God knows our hearts. He knows. Jeremiah tells us that they are deceitful. We can fool ourselves sometimes. God knows we are told our thoughts from afar. You think about that, boys and girls. The Bible says that even before you utter a word, God knows what it is that you're going to say. Maybe some of you have been married long enough. You know what your spouse is going to say before she says it. But God knows everything we're going to say before we say it. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that not only does God know all things actual, God actually knows all things potential as well. He knows everything that is. He knows everything that could be, that is not. He knows, and I've given this illustration before, If God sovereignly ordains an ant to walk a certain path and make a right-hand turn, God knows everything that will come to pass by that ant making that right-hand turn as it affects the rest of human history. God also knows what would happen to human history if that ant turned to the left. And you think, well, there would be no change. But we don't know that. God can do amazing things even with a very small creature like an ant. Stephen Charnock uh, who was a Puritan minister, said uh, our knowledge is but a grain of dust compared to the knowledge of God. Uh, David, in Psalm 147, verse five, says that God's understanding is infinite. There's no end to the knowledge of God. God's omniscience, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, in their work on Puritan theology, says that God's omniscience Uh, lies in his perfect knowledge of himself. Isn't that interesting? God not only knows everything beyond himself, but the reason he can be perfect in his knowledge of everything is because he has perfect understanding of who he is. God learns nothing. He knows everything. Again, Beaky and Jones say God is ignorant of nothing and certainly not of himself. The Spirit of the Lord knows the mind of the Lord, Paul says in Corinthians. God understands himself and therefore understands everything that he has brought to pass. uh, Again, Stephen Charnock says this about God's infallible understanding. He says God sees all things in one instance. Now that's an interesting concept. You and I think sequentially when we think. But God does not need to think that way. God knows all all at once. There's no having to think about A, then B, then C with God. God's knowledge just is. Unlike ours. We have the knowledge of a creature. Uh, His knowledge is infinitely above our own. This is what Cornelius Van Til, one of the controversies we had in our own denomination. Is our knowledge qualitatively the same as God's? Uh, when we say two plus two equals four, do we know that the exact same way God knows it? No, we don't. We don't know anything exactly the way God knows it. God's, God's knowledge is, is infinitely above ours, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. God knows every fact as it relates to everything else, including himself. We, we, we don't have anything. We're close to that kind of knowledge. Now, let me make again a couple applications to this. Under God's sovereignty, God we see his omniscient. So what should we learn from this? Well, number one, one of the things we, I think we should do is ask God, as the psalmist does, Search me, O God. Try me, test me as we come to the Lord's table. Maybe that would be a good prayer for us tonight. Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way within me. Lord, apply your omniscience to your servant here. Uh, That I might come to have an understanding of myself as you understand me. Uh, Maybe we should examine ourselves. The Bible tells us, examine yourselves, test yourself to see if you be in the faith. Uh, Why are we doing this? Are we doing it with right motives? Notice here, every man seems to think he's doing what's right in his own eyes, Proverbs says. But it's the Lord who's looking at the heart, boys and girls. And so we need to look at our heart. As best we can, as God gives us grace to do so. I was struck by a sentence just this week. Somebody mentioned Richard Baxter. And if you've ever read Richard Baxter's Christian Directory, it's just a heap of practical uh, information, how to deal with all kinds of practical um, counseling issues. And uh, one of the things that struck me was, Baxter said we should even eat for the benefit of the soul. Uh, that, that is getting to the motive of eating. Uh, I'm not sure on vacation I was eating to the benefit of my soul always. You know, I hope I was eating to the glory of God, but, but, uh, but anyway, just examining our motives, even in the things that are most mundane. Why am I doing this? And of course, as I mentioned a second ago, as we come to the Lord's table, that the Lord would examine us. Well I need to keep moving here. In our final few minutes to the third verse. And where we see the righteousness of God. The omniscience of God was verse 1. I mean excuse me. The um, Sorry. The sovereignty of God in verse 1. The omniscience of God in verse 2. The righteousness of God now in verse 3. To do righteousness and justice. Is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Now I bet. At some point, this has happened to your family, those of you who have had young kids. Maybe you told the child, or maybe children, you heard your mom say to you, I want you to clean your room this morning. Okay? Go to your room and clean your room. And then uh, later, a couple hours passes, mom's not hearing anything, mom gets worried, what's going on, I'm not hearing much, and goes up and opens the door, and behold! And behold! Room is still a mess. And mom says, I thought I said to you, clean your room. And your room is not clean. And you protest and you say, but mom, look, I made you a picture. I got my crayons out and I made you a picture of you (laughs) to put on the refrigerator. And what does your mom say in response as a wise mother? She said, God desires obedience and not sacrifice. If you really wanted to please mom, you would do what mom says. That is, we are supposed to do that with the Lord, that we do what God tells us to do. We try not to offer God something uh, as a substitute for obedience. Now, of course, the classic passage for this is found in 1 Samuel 15, if you want to turn there uh, with me. In the case of, of Saul, the first king of Israel, you'll remember. And what did God tell Saul to do, boys and girls? God told uh, Saul to kill the Amalekites, the enemies of God. and And he was to utterly destroy them. Verse 3, Samuel said to King Saul, what? Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Okay, that sounds like a pretty simple command. Not an easy command, but a simple one, right? Utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman and child and infant. This is a tough command. Ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. That's the command. This is a judgment of God upon the Amalekites as a type of final judgment in the day of Christ upon all the wicked who refuse to obey the Lord Jesus and trust in Him. A total destruction. Now, what does he do? So Saul defeated, verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Check. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. The oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So you see, God said it is to be a total judgment and destruction upon the Amalekites. And Saul disobeyed. He brought destruction on the men, but he spared the king and he spared the best sheep. He began to probably reason within himself. Hey, these would make good sacrifices. Let us spare them and offer them to the Lord. But that's not what God said, boys and girls, did he? And so we I'll, I'll move on to the end of the story. Verse 22, Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. There's that sentence again that we see in Proverbs 21, 3. And to heed, that is to obey, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he, the Lord, has rejected you from being king. Wow, God removes Saul. You think that's tough. Sparing animals and sparing the king temporarily. But that's how seriously God takes obedience. Now let me say this as we bring it to the gospel. God demands righteousness rather than our sacrifices. This is why we should never trust in our own piety Our own prayers, our own good works to save us from the day of judgment. This is why human merit, mere human merit by a sinner, will never be a satisfactory propitiation. The only way God's justice can be propitiated is through Jesus Christ and his obedience and his substitutionary death on the cross. That's the only thing that will satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. Everything else is futile. This is why every other religion outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ will fail in the final day. They will be told on the final day, the Tibetan monks or those who are following Shintoism, or the Hindu, or the Muslim, God requires obedience rather than sacrifice. And we say what hope is there for us is the obedience of Jesus set before us at the Lord's table here. That Jesus was well-pleasing in the sight of the Father and so that on at least two occasions we hear from heaven the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well-pleased what he could not say of Saul what he could not even say perfectly of David he could say of Jesus the son of David for us that Jesus walked in the way of perfect obedience in thought and word and deed think about that Jesus as a man was with able to stand withstand the scrutiny of the father's omniscience of every motive of everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did and the father was well pleased And in the sovereignty of God, God ordained the cross that his son should die on the cross. That Jesus, who was obedient in his active obedience, now in his passive obedience, suffering the wrath and judgment of God for sinners, should satisfy the demands of the law by dying according to the law. And that he might make atonement for your sins and mine. And therefore, we as Christians, we come only through Jesus and his righteousness and his death. And his resurrection, not in my hands, nothing in my hands, I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. I have no sacrifice that I can offer the father to propitiate his judgment and his wrath. I trust only in the only propitiation available unto men. There is no other name offered unto us, but the name of Jesus Christ. And if you are without Jesus Christ, you are without hope. But if you have Jesus Christ truly by faith in him, you have everything. And no matter what sins and what consequences we suffer for those sins, if we have Christ, God is satisfied. If we have not Christ, no amount of common grace, goodness and works will satisfy God. Our works will be burned up in the day of judgment and God will be displeased. But those who know Christ, believe and trust in Christ, you will be welcomed To the right hand of Jesus. Amen. Father, we are.